Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest, unlike all of the non-special guests. We have again Dr. Vernon Grounds, PhD, former professor at Denver Seminary in the Counseling Department, founder of the Counseling Department at Denver Seminary, and author of Emotional Problems in the Gospel, published by Zondervan in 1976. This is the book. Thanks for being here, Vernon, once again. Vernon is joining us through his words that he wrote. Vernon Grounds received a Bachelor of Divinity from Faith Theological Seminary. He also got his undergrad at Rutgers. I'm not sure why that's not on here, but he got a classical kind of liberal arts education at Rutgers uh, back before they inflated grades. His PhD is from Drew University in psychology with a dissertation on the concept of love in Sigmund Freud. And he has a doctor of divinity that was granted to him from Wheaton College. I think that was not an earned degree. That was a, an honorary degree. And we're in the Bible and anxiety, the final part, part four of this series. Here's Vernon. Anxiety, that viscera tightening tension is an extremely common experience. It plagues most people, even many Christians who sincerely believe the gospel. What can we do then to help our fellow believers more adequately handle this peace-destroying hang-up? Whatever else may be suggested, it is imperative that we clarify the biblical concept of God. Needless to, say, needless to mention, people generally, even many Christians, are afraid of God, confusing reverent fear with distrustful dread. Of course, we are commanded to fear God. Properly understood, that fear is the very heart of biblical faith. It is a spirit of awe. and humility, and adoration, and worship, a complex reaction inspired by an awareness of our Creator's power and purity and perfection. It is a proper creaturely reaction in the presence of that uncreated reality with a capital R which is ultimate mystery with a capital M. Thus, reverent fear was the proper reaction of Moses at the burning bush, as recorded in Exodus 3, verses 2 through 6. Quote, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. 
And he said, Draw not, not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest, standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Reverent fear was the rightful reaction of young Isaiah in the temple when he had a blinding vision of the Lord with the cherubim veiling their faces and crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Above it stood the seraphims. This is a quote. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly, and one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy is holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes has seen the King, the Lord of hosts, from Isaiah 6, verses 2 through 5. Unquote. This is Vernon again. Reverent fear was the proper reaction of Peter, James, and John. When beholding the glory of the transfigured Jesus on the mountaintop in Mark 9, verses 2 through 6, quote, after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Unquote. Reverent fear this is Vernon again. Reverent fear was the fitting reaction of the astonished women at the empty tomb on the first Easter morning. Quote, and they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said anything to any man, for they were afraid. Unquote. That's from Mark 16, 8. So let it be repeated once more, reverent fear is a reaction of indescribable reverence, a reaction of amazement and awe and adoration. The proper reaction of the creature in the presence of his creator, the sinner in the presence of his judge, finite man in the presence of the infinite God, and human child in the presence of the divine father 
And this fear, to be sure, we must never lose. It is paradoxically a fear which, as many passages of Scripture emphasize, liberate us from gnawing anxiety. Think of Proverbs 29.25, quote, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe, unquote. Or think of Psalm 112, 1, verses 1 and 7, quote, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, or, and that delighteth greatly in his commandments. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord, unquote. Or think of Hebrews 13, verse 6, quote, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me, unquote. Thus, the reverent fear of God, never to be confused with distrustful dread, liberates from the fear of man and circumstance. Yet every Christian counselor reports that again and again he talks with fellow believers who do not live in a reverent fear of God, but in an attitude of distrustful dread. Their attitude because they are stumbling, stumbling sinners who have not appropriated the depth of the truth of God's forgiving grace is like that of Adam in the Garden of Eden. After man had eaten the forbidden fruit, Jehovah came seeking the transgressor, calling out, Adam, where art thou? And the guilty lawbreaker replied, Quote, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. That's from Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. So many people, even those who regularly attend church and sincerely believe the gospel, are afraid of God, because they fail, as we all do, to obey him perfectly. Not only that, people are afraid of God because they know that he is everything we are not. God is eternal, almighty, sovereign, righteous, and just. Between him and ourselves stretches an immeasurable difference, infinitely greater than the divergence between a beautiful sunset and a scrambled egg. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 emphasizes this, quote, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, unquote. God in his holiness, then, is like light, more dazzling than an atomic blast, more penetrating than any x-ray. The measureless difference between God and ourselves is emphasized again in a text like Hebrews 12, 29, quote, our God is a consuming fire, unquote. This figurative description does not make us feel very comfortable, especially when we reflect on it in view of Hebrews 10, 31, quote, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, unquote. 
certainly it is not very fear relieving to think about that holy judge whom we must finally face and whose eyes are like flaming fire, Revelation 1.14. God, therefore, is everything that we are not. He is the creator. We are mere creatures. He is righteous, sovereign. We are sinful lawbreakers. He is the everlasting and unchanging Lord. We are little bubbles on the side of on the tide of time that break and apparently vanish forever. So we can hardly blame people for being afraid of God and all his glory and perfection. But ought we react to God with cringing terror, somewhat as a mouse does when the curator at a museum puts it in the cage of a rattlesnake? What kind of museum is this? Uh, that was me. This is Vernon again. Page 45. Ought we to shrink away from God as far as we can get, realizing all the time that there is no escape from his pervading presence, just as there is no escape from our ultimate confrontation with him? Let us once more remind ourselves that God and his holiness and perfection and omnipotence is everything we are not. This line of biblical truth must not be denied, yet this line of truth cries out for counterbalance by another line of biblical truth. And unless we take the counterbalancing line into account, we distort the truth about God and by a caricature of our creator judge may repel people from an acceptance of the gospel. And what is the counterbalancing line of truth? The New Testament describes God not only as light and fire, it describes him likewise as a loving father, a seeking shepherd, a compassionate priest. Indeed, the New Testament insists that if we are to have a proper and profound understanding of God, we must see him as he is self-disclosed in Jesus Christ. Think of that passage in John's gospel where the Savior carries on a brief dialogue with one of his disciples. Quote, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us, sufficeth us. Jesus said unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? John 14, verses 8 and 9. Unquote. To understand God, therefore, we must behold him self-revealed in Christ. Jesus Christ. We must bear in mind what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, quote, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, unquote. 
to avoid a distortion of the biblical truth concerning God, we must especially take into account that counterbalancing passage, which begins in Hebrews 4.15 and runs through chapter 5, verse 3, a passage which affirms that God, as disclosed in Jesus Christ, is quintessentially a compassionate high priest. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity, and by reason hereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins, unquote. Here is a text which supplied the blessed corrective of an all-too-common caricature of, caricature of God, a biblical defect, biblically defective concept that turns him into a terrifying tyrant without a heart. Notice for one thing that this text embodies a revelation, drawing back the veil which hides ultimate reality and showing us the character of the omnipotent creator as he is self-disclosed in Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of chapter 4 contains a double negative. Quote, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, unquote. These negatives cancel each other out and produce a fear-dispelling positive. God can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. God, who is so exalted, so infinite, so pure as to be above and beyond the reach of our minds, is not above and beyond the touch of our emotions. We know what happens when we are emotionally touched. <clears throat> we react as if an experience were taking place inside ourselves. According to this text, something like that happens within the depths of God's being. The Lord of heaven and earth is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. How different, therefore, the God of the Bible is from the God of the philosophers. They talk about first cause, a first cause of the cosmos, the ground of being, the self-existing source of existence, an unmoved mover of unruffled serenity and imperturbable perfection, a sort of cosmic icicle. Their God. Oh, their God, thank the true God, is not the God of the Bible. The true God, 
the God of the Bible, is genuinely personal and measurelessly empathetic, touched by the feeling of our infirmities. I'm going to pause here for a, a moment, and we have uh, just a little bit left here to make a comment that um, on the God of the philosophers, um, I, I would say that um, philosophy and those arguments for God's existence based on philosophy can be very helpful uh, because they do apply to the God of the Bible. So it's not, not necessarily there's two different gods there. It could be that we just get a fuller picture in the Bible. That's, that's what I think. And that's what my mentor, Gordon Lewis, Vernon Grounds colleague at Denver seminary would definitely have said. And so there's a little bit of a, a faculty discussion at Denver Seminary, right? Bringing it right to you on the Republican professor. Here's Vernon again. Notice a second thing about this remarkable passage. The explanation of God's fathomless empathy is not sheer omniscience, the fact that he knows everything exhaustively. In his omniscience, to be sure, he knows the sensations of an ant when it is crushed by the foot of a passerby. In his omniscience, he knows the fright and agony of a sparrow seized by a hawk. In his omniscience, he knows the ache and pain of a bereaved mother's heart. And yet, according to this text, he knows our feelings not by virtue of divine omniscience, but by virtue rather of personal experience. He knows because incarnate in Jesus Christ, he underwent the trials and ordeals and sufferings through which we are passing. The passage declares plainly that he was tested at all points, quote, he was tested in all points like as we are, unquote. Hence, though he did not undergo our specific experiences, he nevertheless ran the whole gamut of sinful possibility, and in running it, never yield, yielded to sin, changing the possibility of evil into an actuality. He never did that. The New Testament insists, and we must insist with it, that Jesus Christ was a fully human being, living a truly human life. The incarnation was not a sham, with God carrying on a sort of masquerade, merely pretending to be human, and thus it was as a human being that Jesus Christ, sustained by faith in his Father and enabled by the Holy Spirit, emerged from the crucible of his years on earth, uncontaminated by the slightest taint of failure 
or disobedience. Experientially, then, he knows the frailty of our flesh. Experientially, he knows the persistence and the power and pain of evil. Experientially, he knows how we feel, and he responds to our feelings with fathomless empathy. If we feel weakness, condemning ourselves as spineless cowards and ashamed of our spinelessness, he empathizes with that feeling. If we feel anger, condemning ourselves as mean and resentful and full of hate, he empathizes with that feeling. If we feel loneliness, condemning ourselves as unwanted by anyone, not excluding God, he empathizes with that feeling. If we feel guilt, condemning ourselves, rightly condemning ourselves apart from grace, as hopelessly lost and under judgment, he empathizes even with even that feeling. For on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A boy, after a serious accident, had a leg amputated. He was destined to be a cripple, unable to do all the things that a boy enjoys, unable, for example, to play baseball. No one could comfort him until one day a pastor, who had lost a leg also in an accident, hobbled into the hospital room. After he was gone, the boy exclaimed to his mother, quote, I like that man. He really understands, unquote. And Jesus Christ really understands our feelings. He has been where we are. He understands, not simply by omniscience, but by his own experience as a fully human being, living truly a truly human life on our earth. Notice for a third thing that this text embodies an appeal. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are invited to come into confidence and expectancy to the throne of God. Come, come boldly. This invitation pulverizes the notion that as guilty sinners, we ought to run away from God or shrink back from him, or, if it were possible, hide from his sight. This text urges us to do the very opposite. It uses an adverb that demands attention. Boldly. That Greek word means uninhibited frankness and complete freedom of speech. It means if we can capture the deepest significance of the original term in our English language, keeping nothing back, verbalizing with no attempt at logic or control, it means it doing exactly what a client does with a psychotherapist, letting accumulated and suppressed emotions spill out. It means doing whatever or doing what philosopher William James advised troubling and troubled individuals to do, exteriorize one's rottenness verbally. This is the apostle's urgent invitation 
spill out all the meanness, the filth, the despair, what else, whatever else may be damned back inside, tell it in, in full detail, dredge the memory and the heart and the conscience, and let it all hang out. Come boldly to the throne of grace. We're almost done. But we may hesitate to act on this invitation because the mention of a throne makes God seem so high and so exalted and so austere as to be unapproachable. Observe, then, the kind of throne we are invited to approach. It is a throne of grace. Observe that again, it is... <laughs> Observe that again. It is a throne of grace. The king who sits upon that throne is a high priest full of love and compassion and forgiveness. The king who sits upon that throne is a father with a mother's heart. Before that throne, we need not grovel like a captured spy begging for mercy from merciless captors. Before that throne, we bow in gratitude and thanksgiving. Notice for still another thing that this text embodies a guarantee. If we respond to the invitation grounded upon the self-disclosure of God's forgiving compassion in Jesus Christ, we will find what we desperately need and want. We will find mercy. We will find a pardon which absolves us of guilt and saves us from the wrath we merit. And we will also find grace. We will find something more than understanding and empathy and acceptance. We will find courage and strength and power. This is what this text guarantees the same guarantee that we sometimes sing about in one of our hymns. Quote, just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear. Ready to help me, ready to cheer, just when I need him most, unquote. If we respond to this invitation in faith, we will discover that God is a God of grace, not a God so exalted he cannot feel our emotions, not a God so holy he becomes disgusted with our repeated failures and refuses any longer to bother with us, not a God who is so busy running his cosmos that he gives us the brush off, not a God like that, no, a God of grace whose mercy has been provided for us at the infinite cost of Calvary. This mind-blowing text reveals, therefore, the mystery of grace and the miracle of mercy to the limit of our little minds, the limit our little minds can grasp such realities. And when we perceive God as he really is, God as he is set forth in his remarkable in this remarkable passage there comes a release from distrustful dread 
yes, there is a release provided we are not, we not only know the full orbed truth, but start putting it into practice. Knowledge plus practice enables us to enter more and more deeply into the significance of 1 John 4.17. Quote, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world, unquote. Knowledge plus practice enables us to rejoice with John Donne. Quote, the love of God begins in fear, and the fear of God ends in love, and that love can never end, for God is love, unquote. I'm happy that you're connecting with this material, if you are. If you're not, and you would like to suggest uh, some way we can uh you can connect maybe or i can help you connect with the material or if you'd like to suggest material uh to me either in term of of in terms of uh books and authors or um personalities that uh, you'd like to hear interviewed or um, engaged with on the podcast please send me an email to the Republican professor at substack.com. You can also make comments on this video. If YouTube doesn't take it down and you can um, subscribe to the Substack. and I hope that you have a great Thanksgiving. Signing off.